we have the ability to taste and see the goodness of God. I, uh, this is the illustration I love. I, I say, you know, a plant that's struggling, a plant that's struggling, and it, you line it up next to all the other plants, and it's half the size, and it's shriveled, and it's not very green, and it's not producing very much fruit. And so you say to that plant, you bad plant, you know, I've given you a great place. I've, I've given you nourishment. I've watered you. I've nourished you with, you know, special minerals and vitamins made for plants. I've put you in a dominant place in the middle of the sun, and, and you are not doing what you're supposed to. Therefore, to improve your situation, I will banish you to the dark basement. I will put you in a cold corner. I will not water you. You will see no sunlight until you get better. How's that going to work? What God has done, he said, listen, yeah, I know who you are. I know what goes in your heart. I know the pride. I know the, the licentiousness. I know everything. The only solution to that is me. The only solution to that is me. So I am going to create a system that gives you access to me regardless of what you are. Because your only chance of being changed is by the glory of my presence. So I'm gonna make a flawless system that does not give you occasional access but can give you continuous access to my presence because it's the only hope that your nature will be transformed. And that's what God has done through grace, through faith, righteousness, through faith. Isn't that powerful? And so we are our own worst enemy we don't even know the ways that we partner with the voices of satanic accusation and guilt. And the, the issue is not the word of God that talks about godliness, talks about prayer, talks about gathering together. There's things we can do aside from being perfect that can facilitate growing near to him. If we just use those things, those aren't legalism, those aren't law, those are, those are what, what helps you stay in his presence. That's why we're told to pray. That's why we're told to worship. That's why we're told to humble ourselves. That's why we're told to gather together. These are not law things. These are things that facilitate the confidence to be in his presence because he loves us. Hallelujah. Dean, why don't you come? That was good, Mark. Well, believe it or not, we're going to talk about Jacob. You can turn to, you can turn to Genesis 27. <clears throat> Have you ever had uh, a family reunion and you go and maybe when you were a kid... Or maybe you are this person now, and the kids come to you, and they say they want to hear stories about the family, right? My, my mom and my mother-in-law uh, both are 80 years old, and uh, my mother in particular is getting more forgetful. And so last year at Thanksgiving, not 23, 22, we made a big deal. We got a big Airbnb, you know, that could 
housed 15, 20 of us, which is just my family alone with eight kids. And, but anyway, brother, sister, my kids, grandkids, and my mom and my mother-in-law got together and we filmed them for three hours. Just asking questions, tell us stories. How did you meet dad? How did you, you know, just stories of growing up, stories of their early marriage. And um, we put that all together and I, you know, this year I, I finally got it all together and sent it out to all my kids so that they have that record of the generations. When we lived together, uh, you know, and, and society was different and families stayed in the same area, you had more of an oral tradition and repetition. But even now, in our families, <laughs> it's just not uncommon for kids to hear stories of, oh, I remember when your dad did that, right? You're acting just like, and then the story comes. That's part of how families get their identity is both the good and the bad stories. You, you want to hear more good stories than bad, but it's not uncommon for, you know, in a family dynamic or relationship, someone has got a little thing in them from that thing that happened 20 years ago, and that tends to leak out in those moments. You're, you haven't changed a bit. You're still doing exactly what, right? Now imagine that you live to 175 years old, Abraham, or 180 years old, Isaac. And now you're Jacob, and you're listening to all the family stories for decades and decades and decades and decades. How many times do you think it was mentioned? Remember when we went down to Egypt, Abraham? Remember what you did? <laughs> Abraham is like, yeah, but it came out pretty good for us, didn't it? <laughs> Literally, God takes that failure, and because of that covenant with that man and his wife, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not excusing, obviously, the, the relational strain that would have created, the problems, the issues. But Pharaoh was, Pharaoh's family experienced plagues. They went down, Pharaoh touched Sarah, and his family gets plagued. And he realizes it's because of her which means it's because of him, and he prospered Abraham. He gave him gifts of cattle and sheep, and Abraham went down to Egypt to escape a famine and left enriched in spite of his issues. Same thing happened with Abimelech. God warns him in a dream. His family is struck barren, and until he repents and for touching who God said, I'll bless those who bless you, but I'm going to curse those who curse you. 
So now he's come under that curse and his family is barren and Abraham has to pray for him. The guy that he tricked and deceived has to pray for him so that his family can produce offspring. Same thing happens with Isaac. And these are the stories, right? And so now your third generation and how many times have you heard of this strange dynamic of this God among many gods? That, that culture, everyone had household idols. There were the chief deities of this region or that region. You moved between lands and nations and there were territorial gods. And that's all what happened out of Genesis 10 and 11 at the Tower of Babel. The nations and the lands were distributed among the gods. And so there's all these fallen rebel spirits in control. And you see it in the mythologies of the Egyptians had their gods, the Babylonians had their gods, the Hittites had their gods, the Canaanites had their gods, the Phoenicians had their gods. And Abram gets called out of this system by the one true creator God. He chooses to believe. God says, I'm going to make this so good for you because you chose to believe. And in the midst of all their issues and in the midst of all these other people, here's Jacob going, <clears throat> okay, this Yahweh seems to really deliver the deal to my family. They're fixing a meal, and that night, Sarah whips out the story again. Bye, Abraham. You're just doing the same thing as you did with Abimelech. You know, you aren't respecting me, and you're lying, and... See, this is where it gets tricky in terms of what Mark was just saying, what we're talking about, because this kind of favor isn't fair. And we want it to be fair, especially if we don't feel like we're the favored. And so something rises up within us like, well, you aren't getting what you deserve or you, you are getting what you don't deserve, and I'm not getting what I do deserve, and we accidentally become karmic Christians. That's karma. What goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. And the entire mechanism of God's favor shatters karmic thinking. We don't live out of what is fair or unfair. We all stand to receive far more than what is fair in Christ. And, and he works on us along the way to refine and sanctify and heal and deliver and change and transform. And that's actually the prize is the full transformation into his image. But it manifests in ways in our lives that can cause other people to be like, well, what, you know what? I don't like this. It's not fair. And the only answer is you're right. I know. I'm sorry. You want in on this deal? So here's Jacob looking at uh, now 
probably 200 plus years, not that he would have had the, all of that, but he's got 150, many, many decades of stories and stories and stories, and he has seen his father's flocks are prospering, his grandfather's flocks are prospering. They're, they're basically taking over wherever they go. And so yesterday, the last two sessions can now greatly inform you why Jacob wanted that blessing. See, we just look at this and think, what a swindler, deceiver. You know the story. We'll pick it up here in Genesis 27. It comes time, and here again we have this duality. You have Cain and Abel. You have uh, Isaac and Ishmael. You have Rachel and Leah. You have Sarah and Hagar. You have Jacob and Esau. And all of these represent different forks in the road of our response to God are standing before him, what we receive or don't receive, how we, how we regard who he is and what he, what he gives us. Two different systems, Sarah and Hagar, you know, the, the, the law that produces slavery versus grace that produces sonship. And Jacob's mom is jealous for him to get the blessing, but Jacob's jealous for it too. So verse 26 of chapter 27. Actually, we'll skip down. They've gone through, you, you know the story. Esau, Jacob announced he's near, uh, sorry, Isaac is near his death, and he has announced it's time for me to pass on the blessing. And so he sends Esau out, who is his firstborn. Now, we've already seen an episode with Esau that informs us of a problem with Esau. He came back from hunting one day, and he was famished, and you see Jacob starting to maneuver already. Esau comes back from hunting, he's famished, and Jacob is there with a pot of stew, and he says, give me some of that stew, I'm hungry. Jacob says, give me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew. And Esau says, what good is my birthright if I die? I just want to eat. Give me the stew. Now we later learn, uh, it says God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. That's a strong word. It, it, messes, with, it messes with us until we understand this dynamic. I am prepared to deliver to you the enormity of all my promises, kindness, favor, blessing. And the oldest son just wanted some stew. But the youngest said, I've been listening to these stories for too long. I want the blessing. And so now, it's a few years later, Isaac's going to die. Esau goes out. 
and he's going to come back thinking he's getting the blessing. But meanwhile, Jacob is putting on hairy stuff to feel and smell like him. He's conspiring with his mom. Rachel cooks some food. This is a messed up family. There's nothing to look at here and admire. Wow, such people of high character. Let's emulate them. No, we would all take up an offering for their family therapy. Raise some money for counseling. You guys have issues. And Isaac is wary at first, but he finally goes for it. And he gives this blessing. And if you track it to what Isaac received, what Jacob, what Abraham given, it's basically this family lineage where the, the promise, the covenant that God gave Abraham is actually passing generation to generation. May God give you the dew of heaven, verse 28, the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. See if there's any curse in here. For Jacob's family, let people serve you. Let nations bow down. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's just a, it's a repeat of the Abrahamic blessing. And the only curse is for those that would dare to touch the blessed ones. There is no curse inside the family. You know, at Christmas, we sing... Uh, Isaac Watts, famous hymn, um, Joy to the World, thank you. He came to make the blessing flow far as the curse is found. See, the answer of Christ is wherever the curse has touched the earth, I have a blessing greater than that curse, and my blessing will overwhelm every curse. So, skip ahead, Genesis 27, verse 41. I'm just going to cherry pick a couple verses because I'm hurtling toward Bethel. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob. Why? Because of the blessing. After he did not regard it or value it, and now he's not able to walk in that blessing. He looks with regret on not being zealous enough for the terms of that covenant. And now what it costs him to be outside of that, but Jacob's inside that. Okay, skipping ahead. Now we're in verse 28. And chapter 28, thank you. Chapter 28. And Jacob is Isaac is sending him to his father's family, uh, actually his mother's family, Laban, I don't remember, great uncle, something like that, to find a wife. He doesn't want him marrying among the Canaanite women. He's sending Jacob, the caretaker of the promise. There's some steps to maintain this within the family, and he doesn't want the idolatry and contaminations of the Canaanites. So he sends Jacob north, but he sends him away. Here again, verse 3, with the blessing. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. 
And lest there be any confusion about what this blessing is, Isaac says, May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you. And may you take the possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. This isn't just any blessing. It's not a random father's blessing. I appreciate the pastoral application there. The power of a father's blessing. But this is a very specific blessing that conveyed the full rights and privileges of Abraham's covenant with God to each generation. And here at this gathering that we're calling generations, it would be so good for us to ask ourselves a question, what are we thinking we're passing to the next generation? When we just cry out, God, bring a revival. God, there's so many kind of rote prayers and good things to pray for, but what is, what framework does that concept of revival operate in that we want them to inherit? God, raise up a people who will really toe the line. And out of that, if you like them enough, pour out your spirit. But we're going to condition their thinking to actually always live in fear of losing what we're asking you to give them because they don't walk in confidence out of your love and your covenant with them. You know, we aren't, we aren't saying that when we say we care about this generation and we're asking for revival, but our paradigms and our, most of our church discipleship is basically asking for a better version and a fresh kind of uh, emotional and spiritual high place within a broken system. So I would much rather be cognizant of the potential to truly bless a generation and raise them up in something that can cause them to go farther than any of us have gone by standing on truths deeper than what we have built our own lives on. So Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran. Verse 11 and just I'm going to note a few phrases here. I'm just going to lay it out and then we'll unpack it. He came to a certain place. And he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And note how God repeats this idea in the inspiration of Scripture. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Something about this place. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. Now, most of the time, we, you know, a lot of popular art, we see literally a ladder. But the idea is steps. And if you look at the, the, the ziggurats of that area, the stepped pyramids that would ascend to the top, that's more the kind of picture of what's actually being seen here. And in fact, many of the the ziggurats that they have uncovered in ancient Babylon, modern Iraq, Persia, ancient Iran, across that entire region, they have names that reflect what Jacob is experiencing here. 
The names of those ziggurats are like the, the, the golden structure of the portal to heaven. The, the ascending uh, uh, divine path to the celestial. I mean, they would have these names because they would, they would have rituals and, and sacrifices and uh, pagan encounters on the top of the, those, those uh, ziggurats. Well, Jacob's way back at the beginning of all of this, and he sees these steps on the earth, a ladder, most translations say, but it's really the, this, these ascending steps, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Wow. Okay. So all of that language is what God said to Abraham. And it passes through to Isaac, and Isaac has just given these blessings. But it's one thing for the father to give it. It's another for God to activate, to announce what you received from them, I validate. It's not just a covenant your father walked in. That blessing that he passed to you is real, and I'm showing up to you now to authorize, enact, validate, and activate. I'm now relating to you as I related to them, and we are in covenant together, and this is going to be really good for you. Just everything about it is... Jacob becomes, now here's, here's another thought for generations, right? What does that mean for a generation to receive the living manifest stewardship of something so beautiful and weighty? What is it, again, that we want them to inherit? What do we pray and expect for them to be excited about? This is easy to get excited about. This is easy to be like, wow. I mean, there's a sense of entrustment, a sacred stewardship. I'm the next in line to carry this in the earth. What do we want the generations to carry? So Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, <laughs> this is one of the most Captain Obvious statements in, the, in Scripture, <laughs> But it's important. Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. But the next statement is also important. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other. And this is one of those theophoric kind of names that other places in that area had. He says, this is none other than the house of God. 
and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the gate of heaven or the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Okay, now let's unpack this. The big picture of the story of God from Genesis to Jesus to Revelation is a story of original design, corrupted design, and restored design. Started in Genesis with be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, take authority. That was the Genesis mandate. Adam forfeited that authority, and we see the, the, the rebel powers in heaven and on earth enslaving, rebel powers in heaven enslaving man. Man loses his authority. But it, the, 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 the grand story keeps working forward. Last night I talked about the story of the bride, but there's also this parallel story of sons being brought forth in the earth. Sons that carry the authority of God. Sons that carry, it's not just bridal access and intimacy in, in uh, total union with God. It is those who are also able to be his voice and represent his will and his authority on the earth. And the bride and the sons have different, it's, it, it's why the image of God is not just revealed in man or woman. The masculine and the feminine both reveal different aspects of what God is looking to produce in the earth. And so you go forward, and the promise of revelation is to him who overcomes. Seven times to the, the churches. Seven times to the ecclesia, to him who overcomes. And it's these promises. I will give to eat of the tree of life. I'll grant authority over nations to be a pillar in the temple. One of those promises is to him who overcomes, I will let you sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine? Have you just stopped and thought? Like if you give 10 seconds to it, your brain will melt. So only give five. You are right now in a heavenly way seated there already. Brain starting to melt. But for all eternity, we will occupy a place of authority that only belongs to God. And yet, it is His good pleasure to raise up many sons to glory. He's not the only begotten Son. He is the only begotten Son, but He is not the only Son. Because it is His good pleasure to raise up other sons. That's why He's our older brother. So here in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see again this generational pattern where each of them represents something that is a prototype for all of humanity. The human journey, the disciples' journey, is prophesied in, Ab in, in Jacob's journey. In this quality of taking the father's faith and acting on it in a way that produces 
divine authority on the earth. Jacob is the transition from blessing to rulership. Jacob is that stage of the generation that has to go through a process of dealing with his own junk and stuff and yet through these incredible encounters and revelation he is being caught up out of his lower nature into his divine calling and by the end of it his name is changed from swindler and deceiver and usurper to he who strives with God and prevails. This encounter at Bethel and the wrestling 20 years later at Peniel, which we'll maybe look at briefly tonight, describe this process of revelation and transformation and authority that formed the high call of all of humanity, including us. So... God has a ladder. That's the first thing we have to... God has a ladder to connect heaven to earth. That's the, the, the baseline of this is there's a place of encounter where Jacob realizes there's actually an answer to the problem of all of his deficiencies. God has a way of connecting divine supply, divine character, divine resources, divine hope, divine vision to all of the human misery and failure that Jacob represents. If, if you really look at Jacob's life and take it at face value, the dude was so jacked up in so many ways. He is a fitting picture for all of us his only hope was to get that blessing. So God has a ladder. How do we go up? How does he come down? There is a ladder just to answer that. God has a highway and he wants traffic on it. And that's what the angels show. It's not just an empty ladder. There's actually movement up and down on this. He is seeing a, a divinely initiated process where resources are coming down and other things are going up. This is all a picture for Jacob. But it emphasizes this place. It keeps talking about this place, this place, this place. And it also says he took one of the stones of that place and he made it a headstone for his bed. He laid his head upon it. Now, at that time, travelers would normally roll up their cloak. You know, you roll up a bedroll, you got something a little soft. Jacob takes a stone and lays, it, lays his head on it for a pillow. A stone from this place. Well, if you correlate, you can look back and you can see in Genesis 12, it specifies that Abraham, Abram came down and he was in this place when God encountered him when he first entered the promised land. And it says that Abram set up an altar there. Now, at this point, 150, 200 years have passed. Chances are the altars kind of fallen down. Those were primitive altars. They didn't mortar them. They just stacked stones. And so some things have happened, and the stones have fallen, but Abram is leaving the promised land of his fathers and going 
in fear for his life because he just cheated his brother out of his inheritance. This is not a high point in Jacob's life. He is a swindler who has been revealed as a swindler. He, his, his father is dying. His brother hates him. And if he doesn't leave, he's dead. And on his way out, he passes through the territory, the very place where Abram, his grandfather, first received this incredible blessing that has been passed on to him. And he looks and he sees, I think, we have to read between the lines. He's like, that's the altar granddad built. And he does something that's very Christological. Jacob is a pattern of the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the vessel of God on earth that gets revelation and they move in authority to bless the nations. So he does something very Christological and it mimics what happened with Abraham in Genesis where I told you when God cut the covenant, he put Abraham to sleep. He comes to this certain place and he gets a covenant stone. And he rests on it. He lays his head on the rock. Now a lot later, the rock of Israel manifests, he incarnates as a man, and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And a man whose name means stone, Petros, Peter, gets Jacob's revelation. You're the latter. Now, Jesus confirms this in John to Nathaniel that Jacob in prototype, the latter that connects heaven to earth, is actually Christ. Jesus comes later and says, I'm that latter. And a few years after that, he asks all his disciples, who am I? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. Connecting dots, you're the latter. Heaven and earth are connected in you. And Jesus says, upon this rock. And Jacob, as a prophetic prototype, is laying his head on this covenant rock. And he gets a dream of the Christ to come. He laid down to sleep. Adam rested and got a wife. Abram fell into a deep sleep and received a covenant. And even so, Jacob, to receive what he must receive, has to rest for it and upon it. Because in type and shadow, this is a picture of him gaining the mind of Christ. It's an Old Testament promise of what we can walk in. In fact, there's a really, uh, this is a side note, I don't have the address, there's this really interesting study a guy has done where he takes the, the floor plan of the temple and the way it would have been positioned in Solomon's day, and he, 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 he takes the temple from an aerial and comes down to the side and looks at it, and you could stand it up like a man and lay it down, and the Holy of Holies is where it's basically Jacob at Bethel and the different steps and basically the Holy of Holies is inside the place where Jacob would have laid his head on the stone. Not geographically, but the picture of it 
is we can move into a place where we have the mind of Christ because we rest upon him in that way. Okay, I got to move on. So the latter, Bethel is a place of revelation, but it requires a response. The latter is revelation, but it is a transference. It's a means to an end. What is the end? God has a ladder, but he wants a house. And I don't think we should just say he wants a house and say that's the house of prayer or that's the church. He wants a family. He wants a house. He wants generations. And this is shocking to think that God would want anything that we could supply. He doesn't need anything from us, but he wants something that we can actually supply. Jacob must respond for that house to get built. Consider that a man who knows how to get revelation and respond to it and wrestle with God founds the nation that builds a house of stone that produces the Messiah who builds a house of living stones and a temple that covers the globe. Like what is happening here with Jacob is so... There is a, there is a ladder in Jacob's life for all of us to get revelation of God's design. The blueprint carries this promise that we can receive covenant mercy, enter a state of rest, and be given revelation to fuel our full journey, even if it is hard and difficult, even if we feel like we're losing ground, not gaining ground. If you look at Jacob's life at this point, he's not winning. And in fact, for 20 years, it's not 10 steps forward, 2 steps back. It's 2 steps forward, 10 steps back. He's outside of the promised land. He has the promise, but he doesn't have the promised land. He's at war with his family. He goes to the place he's supposed to go. He can't even get the girl that he wants. He has to work and work and work. And his, his father-in-law cheats him multiple times. And yet in the midst of this, the nation of God is born. And we look and we say, God, that doesn't make sense. Why do you do it that way? He goes, I know, it doesn't make sense. But it ends up being a really good story. <laughs> and that's why it takes faith so that you don't get discouraged along the way when the story doesn't seem so good. You're going to have times where your story doesn't seem so good. The question is, is he good? And is he leading you to a place that's good? And the, the steps along the way that don't seem good actually are producing things that will, Romans 8.38, work out for your good. So again, looking at this, this Bethel moment as kind of a, a little bit of ecclesia, there's, there's parts here. It was a revelatory moment. Jacob got a dream with revelation of Christ. Peter gets a revelation of Christ from the Father. Jacob rests his head on a stone. Peter talks to the man named Stone and says, I'm going to build my ecclesia on this stone. 
And then he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail. And because we have the, this, this connection that we can get between these two, we understand that what Jacob is experiencing is the flip side of that. It's not enough for us to close the gates of hell. The Jacob generation opens gates of heaven. This is part of the privilege of living out of covenant confidence, being fully transformed even by the pains and setbacks of life, but emerging with a sense of mission and authority and fruitfulness, he, he gives birth to 12, the governmental number. And Jesus inaugurates the ecclesia as the government of heaven on earth, and he says, shut down the gates of Hades, and Jacob says, we're also gonna open gates of heaven. Well, I tell you what, um, I think that this is a good spot to take a break. Let's take a 10-minute break, and we'll come back, and I'll do a shorter 30-minute thing, and we'll wrap up for this morning, okay? 10-minute break, it's 11.03, come back at 11.15. If you're out in the lobby, come on back in. We're going to start. Come on back in. 11.15, you bunch of rule breakers. <laughs> Isn't God good? The, the brilliance with which he has told his story in Scripture, one of my great joys, and it's a particular grace on my life, I know, but what I love to do is unpack ten layers deeper than what most people see in a single passage so that we all have this confidence. He's... He's so good in so many ways. Like the same stories we've read a dozen times and you read it again and the Holy Spirit breathes on it in a new way and you go, oh wow, it's like Bethel. It was always there. That's what he says. How awesome is this place and I didn't know it. Well, was it awesome before? Yeah, it was awesome before, but what he got was eyes to see, and what made it awesome was that his father, his grandfather, had passed through that on his way into the possession of his promise, and he built a memorial there that could be passed down to the generations. And so what, what we're doing now, and what you're... What you're uh, uh, 
hopefully living in and possessing more and more out of our time together is a way to memorialize what God is saying to you and what he's showing you and you don't even know how meaningful that's going to be somewhere down the line. For you to grab hold of this, for you to be transformed by it, Abram didn't have a single son for years. The promise actually depended on a son because it was multi-generational in its uh, potential. If we talked about Abraham more, you would see how this issue of faith wasn't a one-time thing. It was a constant part of Abram's life to have to return to faith and return to faith and return to faith. And then even when it looks like he gets his answer, he has to believe enough to be willing to sacrifice the prize. Resurrection is it, death and resurrection and, and literally in Isaac, but also in Abram's own heart and life. It's all part of the story. This is the gospel journey, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he, he comes in, and before he even has the beginning of an answer to his promise, he builds a memorial around the promise God has given, and decades later, his grandson is going to come to this certain place and find a stone and get a dream. See, we've become so medicated. I, listen, I appreciate the need for counseling and therapy and some of these things, but we've become such a medicated society that if, if, we, were, if we were God, if we could have looked at Jacob in this moment and chosen how to respond, our human sympathy would have been like, oh man, brother, come on. I know this is hard. You know, you've, you've really done some, you've messed up, but you, you're on this journey. Your brother hates you. Probably, you know, Esau has his own issues and we just wanna, we wanna take care. We would figure out a counseling solution to Jacob's emotional pain. God gives him a rock and a dream. And the amazing thing about Jacob is he responds. He says, I'll take that dream. So how did this certain otherwise generic place become the awesome place? And this is, this is actually the message of what I started when I was contemplating generations. How do, how do we... How do we become a Jacob generation? How do we ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart? How do we live in that blessing? If you go back to Psalm 24, it says, He shall receive the blessing. So how does the Jacob generation receive the blessing and transfer it in a meaningful way that produces governmental cultural transformation? brother came up and was saying uh, you know how does how do we do this for the next generation 
And I actually think there's an opportunity. We look at the generation. Abraham, I mean, sorry, Jacob was Abraham's Gen Z. He could have looked and said, man, kids these days. Oh. Biblically illiterate, unchurched, addicted to video games, think they know it all. Been there, done that, jaded, cynical. They're the next generation of voters. Civilization's going to hell in a handbasket. Right? And yet there's something about the opportunity of all of that. They don't have the baggage that we're trying to unlearn. They don't have the confidence in institutions and they're actually quite skeptical of any truth claim if it's not matched by relational integrity and authority. These kids go to college and it's this interesting dilemma where the professor has to earn the right to instruct them by caring for them. That's not how I went to college. I went to college and I took notes and I don't know if I ever knew my professor, but I was still responsible for the grade and the test at the end. But there's a different dynamic with Gen Z and Gen Alpha where they want to know that you care about them and they want to believe that you are human and invested and what is your story and all these things. I don't care about your truth. I care about your fitness to give me truth. And so if we could become a people that are actually transformed at the highest levels to a generation that won't accept the fake and the artificial that we once did when we went to the conference and were as dazzled by the lights as we were by the, the worship, right? We wanted that experience because we felt it was so hip and cool and high tech and yeah, the Spirit of God was there, but also there's all this other cool stuff that just in case the Spirit of God isn't there, we're still happy with it. And they, they're overstimulated in so many ways. That means nothing. You come along... And possess. There was a song by a guy named Charlie Peacock uh, years ago. You can only possess what you experience. So we have raised disciples that know a lot. Do a little and possess nothing. But if we could become those who possess this kind of life. And now we have a voice that that generation is going to say, we hear something and see something in you that we can't find anywhere else. And now you're talking about a billion soul harvest. So what does it take to transform? He's, J Jacob is returning back and most of this territory is not, it's not under the nation of Israel yet. It's under all the demonized pagan tribes and he's passing through this place with history covenantal history he rests on that covenantal history he gets a dream and he realizes 
This place has always been special, and I think the always goes back to Abraham's encounter. Abraham made sacred geography out of his own response to God that another generation could walk in. And yet Jacob didn't know it. It just looked like a heap of ruins. He decided to go to sleep, gets a dream, and says, it's always been awesome. I just didn't know it was awesome. And then he has a certain kind of response profile that is instructive for us in what it takes to transform demonized territories into divine inheritance, into gateways of heaven. First, he awakes. Right? It's one thing to go to, uh, to enter into rest, but it's another to actually awaken to what the revelation and the dream now require. He couldn't just stay there and sleep. Sleep and rest are two different things. So he rested his head, got the revelation, and now he has to awake. Some of us are asleep in a certain place, and we have to be awakened. Some of what's happening in this room is something in your spirit is going, oh, I'm starting to see. We can so easily become dulled that we have no sense of God's presence or purpose. Preparation for Jacob's awakening began earlier with small obedience. His father wanted him to do something. Go there and find a wife. Don't stay here. And he obeyed. And it just says he went toward Haran. It doesn't say he took this path or that path or that path or that path. There may be ten ways to get to Haran. I don't know. But it's the small act of obedience on the way that positions him to intersect with covenantal history and revelation. So much good transpires in our simple acts of obedience. And Jacob was heading somewhere when his path intersected with destiny. So many of us lack the confidence to fail. And that's part of law-based thinking. Because we associate failure with feelings we don't want to have, disappointment that God, we assume God is going to have. Failure could feel like disobedience. Oh, I didn't hear you right. And so we stay stuck and we ask God to do great things. God, do great things. You know, you've heard the phrase, you can't steer you can only steer a moving ship. Like you get, a, you get a vessel going in a certain direction, and if it needs to change course, there's friction points with the rudder and the water that can translate that energy into a change of direction. But you turn off the engines and the boat's dead in the water, and you can spin the wheel all you want. It's not going anywhere. God has a way of permitting friction points in your life if you're going in the wrong direction. And that's the value of going in the wrong direction. It's actually better than 
Now, the right direction's great, but don't, don't miss the beauty and simplicity of how many wrong directions can help you know the right direction. Wisdom comes from experience. Where's experience come from? Bad decisions. And so you set off toward Haran. You got a load of baggage and problems behind you, but you commit in the small obedience and you set off. And something about this, you intersect destiny. And this is all part of the awakening. Sometimes you have to leave one place and determine, I'm going to go to another place. We don't always know how to get there. We don't always know what we'll find. But the decision to move forward is even part of our awakening. Second, Jacob announces... See, nothing has changed yet, but there is power in our voice. This is a principle Jesus will demonstrate many times, and it's what creation starts with, the Godhead speaking and creating. Your voice is your address on planet Earth. Your voice speaking in faith is how the radar of heaven locates you. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain and believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted. Therefore, pray, ask, believe. Don't just pray without asking. Don't just ask without believing. It's all woven together. And don't just think it. Whoever says. There's this dynamic theology of how we rest and receive, but then awake and declare that keeps us from presumption, keeps us from passivity, keeps our spirit bright and zealous, because sometimes I'm going to not ask, and when I don't receive, the Holy Spirit will be like, well, we, we weren't actually even talking about that. You didn't talk to me about anything. So I gave you the answer to your nothing. It's like, oh, yeah, this is about a relationship. Oh, okay. So can I do or have this? Well, no. <laughs> okay, there's an answer, not the one I wanted. Or why don't you step out and see? Step out, fall off a cliff. He's like, ah, wrong step. <laughs> but I got you. Going to pick you back up. Let's try this again. Now I have experience. Now I have wisdom. Don't think I want to do that. Others looking at me are like, well, you've fallen into sin. You've fallen into this. You've fallen into that. No, I fell into him. And this, this dynamic of our voice, see, Jacob doesn't just wake up. It says he declares something. This certain place that was formerly called Luz, 
This is the house of God. He announces the revelation he received. It's not enough to just get the revelation, to rest and get the revelation. It's not enough to awake. You've got to put your voice to it. And here's part of the principle. I had a, uh, I'm sorry if you love your dog, but growing up I had the best dog ever. It's a shepherd collie mix. His name was Ramey. We lived out in the country, and he was just, he was, a, he was quite possibly the dog. <laughs> but because we lived out in the country, you know, he'd wander around and do this, that, and the other. So when it was time to feed him, how many of you all live with outside dogs that roam? Anyone? Yeah? A few of you? Ever? Well, when it's time to call the dog, you go out with the bowl of food, and I'd call out, Ramey. I'd shake the food. Ramey. Now, if he didn't come, the answer was not, Ramey doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Well, Ramey's dead. Ramey's been translated like Enoch. Ramey doesn't exist. Let's go get another dog. Put the food away. Now, what do you do when the thing you're calling to doesn't respond? You call more. I started out at one volume and I moved to another volume. Ramey, Ramey. See, the farther your promise seems, sometimes the louder your voice needs to get. And yet we respond exactly the opposite because in a law-based thinking we will conclude that if the promise isn't being answered, there's something hidden in our life that is keeping God from answering and our voice will actually fall soft. We'll be like, uh, Ramey? Uh, we'll move on. No, the very idea of using your voice to speak to the mountain, to call to the promise, is you have to be possessed enough to get loud. Jacob responds from his gut. You can hear it in his proclamation. He didn't do a kind of a systematic analysis uh, you know, okay, what, what could it mean to have a dream like this? What, what is it? He didn't analyze the data and compile information. He responds from his gut. God, you're doing something. This is a, a sacred encounter. This is your house. It's awesome. I didn't know it. There's a lot more gut level. See, Jesus was born a Jew, not a Greek. The Jews, they're, they're, I mean, they're... they're belly out right they live from their belly they live from an emotional place of you know I mean these this is a culture that if there was a funeral they hired mourners bring the wailers we want so much noise to represent the sadness our family feels and we have become so cerebral in our discipleship 
that we will talk ourselves out of divine moments. He speaks in faith and he bears witness to the spiritual reality. And notice, this is the original. If a tree falls in the forest, is there, does it make a sound, right? That philosophical question. I've heard this question phrased differently. If a man makes a mistake <laughs> in, in the woods, is, uh, I'm saying it wrong, but it's basically... Is he still wrong if his wife isn't around or something like that? <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> uh. Notice, no one's around. Who's Jacob talking to? He's talking to himself, he's telling himself. He's announcing to the universe. He's talking to God. But whatever it is has a quality behind it that silence would betray. All things came into being by the word. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into, be into being. This is what was said of Jesus. No one is present to hear Jacob say anything. But the word of faith has been taken to some excesses that I don't believe are biblical, but the, the restoration of this idea that came out of the city of my birth, Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a modern sense, is a gift to the body of Christ. Yes. The Word of God spoken in faith creates what it defines. So Jacob saw it, and by saying it, he made that place what he saw. Bethel was only potentially Bethel until the Son of the Covenant arrived and got the revelation to declare it was Bethel. One of the most powerful human faculties is our authority to name a thing. Do you know angels didn't know what an elephant was until Adam said, that's an elephant. Whatever the language was, and now every language is the language with which heaven calls those things. God says, Adam, I'm going to bring a bunch of stuff I've created, and you are going to name, you're going to, say, you're going to take the chaos of what is unknown about this beautiful thing, and by you naming it, everyone will now know what I've done. So this is the power of our life to have Bethel moments where we get revelation and we name that thing. And now that thing exists in a way that it didn't before when it was just a dream. And in that sense, we have to see that Jacob saw the ladder first and then he started acting like a ladder because he's pulling down divine realities and establishing it on earth. So he awakes, he announces, third, he anoints. What is it about the anointing that can even mark a geographical place? It's the place of Abraham's original covenant. Luz was Luz, and it always was. Until the son of the covenant arrives. And in the 
announcing, he also, he does that thing that anointing is meant to do. He sets it apart. He anoints that rock and says, this isn't just any other place. And all these concepts work in tandem, right? If something is worth announcing, it's worth believing for the anointing to rest upon it. And the anointing is what sets a thing apart by which we reinforce that cycle of entering into his rest. He started with rest, and then he anoints it as holy, which we saw last night is fundamentally connected to setting apart a thing for rest. Now, the, the, the dovetail to this that I don't want to get lost on, so much of this I know that Mark has taught in other ways and developed in other ways that are so compatible related to metaspheres and shifting atmospheres and the power of a changed climate to affect a region. That's this Jacobian experience of having a Bethel moment where you see a hidden reality that's true and then you participate with it uh, um, in, in labor, in declaration, in faith, in anointing, so that the potential of that place to be a Bethel is fully realized for generations to come. This will be one of the epicenters of prophetic activity in all of Israel. And it will be targeted by the enemy to be uh, co-opted for pagan purposes. When the northern kingdom drifts into apostasy, one of the first things they do is go to Bethel and set up false gods and idols. Why? Because there's something real there. So it's, it's not enough to just establish it. We have to be able to preserve and pass it down from generation to generation. Because the enemy will recognize the importance of our Bethels more than we will. Some of you have had dreams that you have given up on or forgotten about. You let your voice fall instead of calling louder. You've let your voice fall and believed that, well, that didn't really happen or this, that, and the other. And the enemy has taken up uh, a position of uh, such intense resistance and that's caused you to neglect a latter moment in your life. But if you receive that dream from God, it's because he actually wants you to possess that place so that you can pass it down through the generations. Okay. Almost done. It's, all, it's also important. He anoints the stone that came from his father's altar. And so there's a continuity between the generations. Even if we are talking about some stuff that we feel like it would have been better, you know, like, why, why wasn't I taught this? Why over the generations hasn't this become, why, are, why do we have to pioneer the Jacob generation, if you will? Feels like there's so much to get done in our own life 
to have something to pass on. And the pace of problems in the world is outpacing our confidence that we can do enough fast enough to make the difference. Right? And so then we look back and we're like, ah, this, that, and the other about the previous generations. No, they were faithful to walk in the revelation they had. And you wouldn't be having this conversation if they hadn't had those conversations. And so we anoint the, tr the, the history. We don't cut our own legs out from underneath us by cursing our fathers. We walk in their blessing, and whatever needs to be corrected, they corrected some things from their fathers, but they also walked in the favor of what their fathers gave them. And the best we can do is bless our roots while producing new and good fruit. And so we anoint that stone. We don't curse it. We become possessed by a vision that causes us to move deeper into realities that we ourselves could not walk in unless they had brought us this far. Fourth, even if it is only a small and symbolic act, Jacob acts. He awakes, announces, anoints. This is one of those messages, right? It's all A's. He acts. He begins building the house. He starts piling some new stones. It's small, but it's a start. And here again, it's important to start. We wait for the perfect beginning rather than the beginning that can proceed to perfection. It's very small, but he starts. One rabbi has pointed out that the fate of the entire nation of Israel hinges on this moment where Jacob recognizes enough to enter into the labor of the previous generations and rebuild and renew. And everything that comes out of that is a result of him acting in that very small way. Lastly, he agrees. He actually declares his agreement with God. He commits to a process of walking with God and trusting Him. We see this manifested in his commitment to tithes, the 10%. I think he's thinking, I remember hearing the stories of my granddad, who didn't have an army but conquered five kings, then met Melchizedek, and when the other kings wanted to give him the spoils of war, he refused it, and he gave to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him bread and wine. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just trying to do what I see, you know? And so he agrees, he, he, he it's, it's, it's quite small, actually. If you look, he's still in this conditional space. You can read it, and he's like, well, if you'll do this, then I'll do this, and and he rebuilds that thing and he commits to the tithe. But Jacob's still at the very beginning of this journey. Yeah. And we often take, Steve and I were talking. Uh, and, and actually, I first heard this truth from John Arnott. I'm going to wrap up with this. John Arnott coming out of the Toronto Blessing. It was his apologetic for the strange manifestations. And how he applied it was, if you see someone flipping and flopping and laughing on the ground, and you take a photo and you say, this is, this is who they are. This is their life with God. And it's 
kind of offensive and weird and strange. And the photo doesn't communicate the movie. If you had a movie of what they came with in their brokenness, and then you catch that moment where God touches them, and then you keep recording the movie and you see this change and transformation that's happened, suddenly the photo is way more valuable and way more understandable because it's connected to a series of events that God is quite patient to produce. And so in our own lives, we have these one step forward, five step back moments where we don't really believe we're progressing in God because we still measure in superficial ways. Everything looks behind, our checkbook looks empty, our, uh, our struggles and uh, uh, addictive behaviors are worse than ever. And we feel like the photos of that moment are so wretched we don't want anyone to take the photo but we actually feel defined by that moment as if our discipleship has taken a five-year pause. I'm just so stuck and broken. And we don't realize how good God is at doing what He does. We don't realize how patient He is and that He is actually producing things. Do you know that He really likes humility? Do you know that a series of failures, even moral failures, even sinful conduct that produces humility has the potential to be utilized by Him to move you so much further than if you are successfully living a moral life that makes you proud? Now, only He is able to bring those things to pass. And so the, the, uh, the peanut gallery that wants to, you know, comment on, okay, here, here's where you're clearly stuck. And you need to get unstuck. And I'm looking at these qualities and virtues, and I'm not seeing hardly any of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and this, that, and the other. And meanwhile, it's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee's like, I'm doing so well. (laughs) And the tax collector is on his face, beating his chest, saying, God, I'm not worthy. And that has positioned God to say there's no resistance to my redemptive work. And so God is actually working in our broken times. If you've really made a decision to follow Him and His Holy Spirit is really at work within you, then there is no backward in the kingdom. There's only forward. And when it manifests externally, that's wonderful. We love to see that. But if the kingdom is manifesting internally in humility and brokenness and tenderness, that's a good thing. So Jacob's response here is quite small. It's quite token, we might say. It's conditional and immature. 
And yet, like a down payment, it's the best he can do. And God says, okay, from this place, let's keep going on this journey. Well, let's pray. God, once again, we just, we want, we want to be such a generation. We want to possess by experience. We want to know beyond knowing. We want to be rooted and grounded in love. We want to dream your dreams. We want to awaken to destiny. We want to announce and anoint and act. God, we want the the pagan culture around us to be baptized as Bethels through us. We speak to the beautiful potential and your undying love for Gen Z, for Generation Alpha, that a generation yet born would praise you. We bless We want to be the Jacob generation, but we also bless those Jacobs to us. We say they are they are fit. They're, 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 They're primed and ready for something real. We call them into an experience that we ourselves want to embody. And so, God, would you accelerate in this room the apprehension of these things for ourselves? Would you make us a truly transformed people and reset our faulty wiring, deliver us fully into love? God, I'm asking even in this room tonight and tomorrow night and in the midst of the cold and the weirdness and all the stuff, God, would you just in, in, in our bedrooms sneak in with dreams? Would you baptize the mundane moments of our lives with exalted purpose and possibility? Would you cause us to drive the streets and see businesses and neighborhoods and schools and regions of a certain place called Spruce Grove and Edmonton and all the surrounding areas that seem so paganized in so many ways and would you make us your ladder? Could we be found in Christ in such a way that we become the people who know how to move heaven to earth, shift the atmospheres, ascend the mountain of the Lord? Amen. All right. Well, we're going to have a meeting tonight. Thanks for being here. Bless you.